Chapter 11 of The Adventures of a Suburbanite. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Adventures of a Suburbanite by Ellis Parker Butler. Chapter 11 My Domesticated Automobile. I have said that I left Millington happily working over his automobile when I went to the country club that afternoon. When I returned, he was still working away, and so well had I wrecked his car that all his repairing seemed to have made not the slightest impression on it. John, he said brightly, you certainly did a good job. It will be months before I have this car in any shape at all, I am sure. It is going to take all my spare time, too. I mean to set my alarm clock for three and get up at that time every morning. It is always a pleasure for me to see another man happy, and at half-past two the next morning I was waiting for Millington at his garage door. He came out of his house promptly at three and joked merrily as he unlocked the garage door but the moment he threw open the door his face fell. And well it might. The dished wheel had been trued. The crushed hood had been straightened and painted. A new cylinder had replaced the cracked one. And when Millington tried the engine, it ran without a sound, except that of a perfectly working piece of well-adjusted machinery. Millington got out of the car and stood staring at the motor, and suddenly with a low cry of anguish he fell over backward as stiff as a log. Mrs. Millington and I managed to carry him to bed, and then I returned to the garage. I was not going to desert Millington in his adversity. After the doctor had visited the house, Mrs. Millington came out and told me that her husband was still in a comatose state due to brain shock, but that he kept repeating, sell it, sell it, over and over, and she was sure he must mean the car. She said that while she would hate to part with the car and give up all the pleasure of starting for Port Lafayette, she feared for her husband's reason if he continued to receive such shocks and she was willing to sacrifice the car at a very low price if I insisted. She said I had not, like Millington, become habituated to hearing a knocking in the engine, so the lack of it would not bother me, and that owning a car that repaired itself overnight was what most automobile owners would call a golden opportunity. I suppose if I had come home and said to Isabel, my dear, I have bought an Asiatic hyena. She would have been less shocked and surprised than she was when I entered the house and said, Well, my dear, I have bought an automobile. Isabel is of a rather nervous disposition, and driving behind Bob, our horse, has tended to eliminate any latent speed mania she may have ever had, for Bob is not a rapid horse. Of course, Isabel drove the horse at a trot occasionally, but that was when she wanted to go slower than a walk, for Bob was what may be called an upright trotter. 
one of those horses that trot like a grasshopper. The harder they trot, the higher they rise in the air, and the less ground they cover. When Bob was in fine fettle, as we horsemen say, he could trot for hours with a perpendicular motion like a sewing machine needle, and remain in one identical spot the whole time. He could trot tied to a post. Sometimes, when he was feeling his oats, he could trot backward. I suppose that when I mentioned automobile, Isabel had a vision of a bright red car about twenty-five feet long, with a tonnage like an ocean steamer, at a speed of one hundred and ten miles an hour. One of the machines that flash by with a wail of agony and kill a couple of men just around the next corner. But Millington's automobile was not that kind. It was a tried and tested affair. It had been in a Christian family for five years and was well broken. Nor was it a long automobile. It was one of the shortest automobiles I have ever seen. Indeed, I do not think I ever saw such a short automobile. Short and high seemed to have been the maker's motto, and he had lived up to it. He couldn't have made the automobile any shorter without having cogs on the tires so they could overlap. If the automobile had been much shorter, the rear wheels would have been in front of the four wheels. But what it lacked in length, it made up for in altitude. It averaged pretty well, multiplying the height by the length. It was the type known in the profession as the camel type. When in action, it had a motion somewhat like a camel, too, but more like a small boat on a wintry, wind-tossed sea. But, ah, the engine! There was a noble heart in that weak body. When the engine was in average knocking condition, one knew when it started. In two minutes after the engine started, the driver was on the ground. If he did not become dizzy sitting at such a height and fall off, the engine shook him off. But if Isabel did not take kindly to the idea of owning Millington's automobile, Ralph seemed glad I was going to buy it. You won't be everlastingly asking me to take a little run up to Port Lafayette, he said. For years before you moved out here, Millington bothered the life out of me and I cannot bear riding in automobiles. I hate them worse than that hired man of yours does. How does he like the idea? I told him rather haughtily that I did not usually consult Mr. Prawley when I bought automobiles. Then Rolfe said he thought, usually it was just as well for an ignorant man to consult someone, but that he knew Millington's automobile was a good one. He said he knew the man that had owned the machine ten or twelve years before Millington bought it. He said that everyone knew that machines of that make that were made in 1895 were extremely durable. He said he remembered about this one particularly, because it was the period when milkshakes were the popular drink, and his friend used to make his own. He said his friend would put the ingredients in a bottle and tie the bottle to the automobile seat and then start the engine for a minute or two and the milk would be completely shaken. So would his friend. 
Rolfs asked me to let him know when I brought the automobile over from Millington's. I had no difficulty in doing so. When I ran that automobile, the only difficulty was in concealing the fact that it was arriving anywhere and in getting it to arrive. Often it preferred not to arrive at all, but when it did arrive it gave everyone notice. Isabel never had to wonder whether I was arriving in my machine or whether it was some visitor in another machine. Under my regime, my machine had a sweet purring sound like a road roller loaded with scrap iron crossing a cobblestone bridge. When the engine was going and the car was not, it sounded like giant firecrackers exploding under a dishpan. The very day I purchased the car and brought it into my yard, Mr. Prawley came to me and told me he had a very important communication to make. He said his poor old mother was sick, and he would like a month's vacation. He added that he imagined the automobile would last about twenty-nine days. As he said this, his lean, villainous face wore a look of fear, and when I told him he could have the vacation, he departed, walking backward keeping one eye on the automobile all the while. But the automobile did not behave in the bewitched manner for me that it had for Millington. It did not repair itself overnight at all. If anything, it deteriorated. Oddly enough, now that the automobile was quite tame, Isabel, who usually has perfect confidence in me, declined to ride in it but frequently we took rides together, driving side by side, she in her buggy behind Bob, and I in my automobile, and occasionally, when the road was rough and the engine working well, I would drop in on her unexpectedly. But not always, sometimes I fell off on the other side. I found these little trips very pleasant and exceedingly good for a torpid liver if I had had one, and I enjoyed having Isabel with me, especially when we came to bits of sandy road where the rear wheels of my automobile would revolve uselessly, as if for the mere pleasure of revolving. Then I would unhitch Bob from the buggy and hitch him to the automobile, and he would tow me over the sandy stretch, aided by the engine. It was a pretty picture to see this helpfulness, one to the other, especially when my engine was palpitating in its wild, vibratory manner, and Bob was trotting at full speed, while I fell out of the automobile, first on one side, then on the other. Isabel enjoyed these little moments exceedingly, and often I had to go back to her after I had passed the sandy spot and pat her on the back until she could get her breath again. She had to admit that she had never imagined she could get so much pleasure out of an automobile. But it was that kind of an automobile. Anyone could get more pleasure out of it than in it. I myself found that, after the first novelty wore off, automobiling became a bore. As a method of securing pleasure, the cost per gallon to each unit of joy was too high in that machine. Riding in my machine was not what is called joy-riding. It was more like a malady. 
Of course, we never attempted a long tour like that to Port Lafayette, which is eleven miles from Westcote, and it was about the time my tire troubles began that I thought of domesticating my automobile. I remember with what pride I discovered my first puncture. Every automobile owner of my acquaintance had tire troubles, and I had never had any, and I felt slighted. Sometimes I felt tempted to take an awl and puncture a tire myself, so I too could talk about my tire troubles. But I had a feeling that that would be unprofessional. I had never heard of any really sporty automobilist punching holes in his tires with awls. In fact, they seemed to consider that there was no particular pleasure in punctured tires. That was the way they talked as if a puncture was a misfortune, but I knew better. I could hear the undercurrent of pride in their voices as they announced, Well, I had three punctures and two blowouts yesterday. I was running along slowly about fifty-five miles an hour between Oyster Bay and Huntington, when... And then the next man would pipe up and say, Yes? Well, I beat that. I was speeding a little, not much but about sixty miles an hour on the Jericho Turnpike last night, and all four tires, and I, through it all, had to sit silent. I longed to be able to say, I was speeding along yesterday at about half a mile an hour, the machine going better than usual, when suddenly I jumped out and stuck my penknife into the forward left-hand tire. I had never had a puncture. I was not in their class but my turn came. I was speeding a little, about one city block every five minutes, on 13th Street, when my sparker stopped sparking. When your engine misses fire, there are 642 things that may be the matter, and after you have tested the 642, it may be an entirely new 643rd trouble. I have known a man to try the first full 642 remedies unavailingly, and then sigh and wipe his goggles, and the engine began working perfectly. And it was only by chance, pure chance, that he happened to wipe his goggles. Probably he had not wiped them for years, but after that the first thing he did when his engine did not fire was to wipe them and never, never again did it have the least effect on his engine. That is one of the peculiar things about an automobile, and there are 999 other peculiar things, each of which is more peculiar than all the rest. I had just taken my automobile apart to discover why the engine did not work, and the various pieces of its anatomy were scattered up and down the street for a block or more and I was hunting up another piece to take out, when I noticed that one of my tires was flat. I had a puncture. I suppose I would have thrilled with joy at any other time, but just after a man has dissected his automobile is no time for him to thrill. He has other things to amuse him. I have even known a man who had just discovered that his last battery had gone dead to swear a little when he discovered that two tires had also gone flat. It was when I was pumping up that new inner tube that I decided to domesticate my automobile. 
it seemed to be a shame to take such a delicate piece of machinery out on the rough, unfeeling road, and I remembered that Rolfs had told me of a Philadelphia friend of his who had half domesticated his automobile. Rolfs said that once, when he was foolish, he had ridden half an hour out to his friend's farm, and there the automobile was, jacked up, and a belt attached to one of the rear wheels, and in less than five minutes the car was doing duty as a piece of farm machinery, running a feed cutter. Rolfs said it was great. He said it was the only time he ever felt satisfied that an automobile was getting what it deserved. He said that all the men had to do was to keep the fodder cutter fed with fodder, and that it kept two farm hands busy. He said I ought to get some fodder and cut it that way and stop being an obstruction in the public highways. He suggested that I get some wood and saw wood with the automobile, or get some apples and make cider. He suggested a thousand things I could do with the automobile, and not one of them was riding in it. I had tried riding in it myself, and after owning it a week or two, I decided it was just the kind of automobile that was meant to do general household work so I domesticated it. End of chapter 11 Recording by Arnold Banner, Mount Vernon, Maine